1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd, and today I am talking with Kevin Landis, author of the new book One Public, New York's public theater in the era of Oscar Eustace. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thanks, Andy.
0: Pleasure to chat with you.
1: So a central tension of your book is uh, is the, the tension, maybe even the contradiction, between the kind of socialist uh, founding principles of the public theater, which have certainly been uh, espoused as well by Oscar Eustace, the current artistic director, and the reality that exists in not just a capitalist world, but in the United States, in New York City, uh, in some ways the the capital of global capital. Um, how How did you decide that that would be such a fundamental organizing principle of your book?
0: You know, it it became pretty obvious pretty quickly, and I and I and I think I knew it going in. Uh, but as I started getting into the research, um, it, you know, it became clear that I had to look at it from that that perspective. I mean, just to put a little background on it, for in people don't know, I'm sure all of your listeners do. But you know, the public theater started as as the New York Shakespeare Festival. You know, it was in the park; it was free for all. You know, Joe Papp, famously the the, the founder of the company, um, sort of famously you know socialist in his ideals wanted everything to be free wanted to bring Shakespeare to the people I mean so that sort of ethos and methodology was what um, was was critical to him and 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 so it is as well um, with with Oscar Eustace um, but of course times have changed in the last 1670 years. Um, and you know the the realities of the American theater, the realities of of a theater company that transfers mega shows like Hamilton and um, and here lies love right now to to Broadway makes these they're sort of the capitalist socialist um, tension all that more present. So in every almost every interview I you know I do with with Oscar and with others, you know that that tension, um, bubbles to the surface, and I don't. I just want to say I don't know that tension is altogether the right word because I think Oscar would say that grappling with that. I'm going to just say dichotomy um, is kind of what the theater is about, so it gives it um, its existence.
1: I feel like this is a, a a kind of dilemma that a lot of theaters are, are grappling with in, in a different way, but it seems heightened at the theater at the public both because of its extraordinary commercial success and because of its extraordinarily explicit left-wing values as opposed to, you know, the kind of general progressivism of the nonprofit theaters as a whole. Like, most nonprofit theaters are not headed
0: by avowed Marxists. <laughs> yeah. No, they're not. Um, Unfortunately, I, I would say. Well, I mean, they might be, but they're not perhaps saying it quite as explicitly as, as Oscar does. No, and I think, you know... The public theater, for for better or worse, obviously I think for better, has established itself um, as a de facto national theater. We don't have a national theater, but it's maybe as close as you get. Um, and so, you, and you're called the public, as one of my interviewees said in in in, a, in the book, that once you're called the public, um, that's kind of a promise to people. Um, and if you've made those sorts of promises, then then you've got to deliver. So it it makes it sort of ground zero for those tensions. But I think as the Thesis of the book also is that that's how the public theater has survived and thrived is to grapple with those things, have major slip ups. That's okay, um, and places where they've really succeeded in in espousing their um, their ethos.
1: One way that some theater companies kind of try to to finesse that uh, dilemma is, is the sort of like one-for-them, one-for-us idea, you know, that you produce something that's like a big, splashy hit, and then that allows you to do the the more serious work that you really care about. But one of the things that's interesting to me about the public is that they really care about the big, splashy hits. Like, Oscar Eustace really believed in Hamilton as, like, an important, um, you know, politically important piece of theater to put on, as well as a theater that a, a piece that might well make the theater a, a huge amount of money over the course of its, um, you know, never-ending run.
0: Um, that's yeah, that's exactly right. That they believe in the work that they do, <laughs> whether or not it's, it's successful financially or not. Yeah, um, I think you, more about that, Andy. If you, if sure, right. sure. Yeah, I think what what you're getting at is 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 quite important. Um, And, you know, there are public theater detractors who might disagree with me, but I I really do believe um, from having worked uh, on the ground and and interviewed a lot of people, they're not going to push a show to Broadway or they're not going to encourage a show to Broadway um, with commercial producers. And they're not going to do it in their theater unless they believe in it. Um, So I think that's something that has to to be be managed. Um, If it's successful on Broadway... I was going to say Hamilton again, but we got to stop you then Hamilton, <laughs> you know, um, Fun Home would be another example. They believed in that and, and it wasn't automatically going to go to Broadway. Um, very few shows are going, are automatically going to Broadway. I think Hamilton was, despite what some people say, but, um, but sometimes it's, it's a surprise. Yeah.
1: Um, Fun Home is in some ways a kind of unusual show to go to Broadway. It's so small and personal and intimate. But I, I never saw it in the public. I only saw it on Broadway, where I saw it twice. And and I felt like it was such a breath of fresh air to see something that felt, yeah, that felt like everybody involved with it believed in it. Whereas, I'm not going to name names, but certain Broadway shows feel like, oh, somebody thought that this was a good way to squeeze some more money out of some intellectual property.
0: Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I I mean, again, it's all a matter of taste, but I don't know many shows that I've seen. I can't think of any right now that went to Broadway from the public that didn't, to me, have some pretty um, important things to say about American society. You don't get a lot of fluff transferring from the public to Broadway. I'm willing to be challenged on that if you can think of something, Andy, but I don't think so.
1: Yeah. I I can't either. You you mentioned
0: earlier that the
1: public does have its detractors. And I feel like that's partially because of their idealism. Like when you, when you call yourself the public and when you espouse those ideals, you're sort of telling your audience to hold you to them. Um, So I want to just give you a chance to kind of like provide the other, the other side of that argument, which is um, in your book, you clearly articulate that you think the public under the era of Oscar Eustace has been, for the most part, wildly successful. So what do you see as its notable successes, um, not just in terms of individual productions, but in terms of kind of the ethos of the theater over that period?
0: Yeah, and I'm sure we'll dive into it, but I mean, I I think you're right. I think it has been wildly successful. Right now in this current moment, you know, there's been a lot of pushback on the public. There's been a lot of pushback on major Theaters broadly, and there's been pushback on Oscar, so we can talk about that. But no, I agree. It I I, I agree with your assessment. I think it has been wildly successful. Um, and we we name all of these major shows, but there are other things that I think are a little more quietly successful that really define what the public theater is. Some people don't know because they only hear about the big things. There's there's six performance venues at the Lafayette, uh, headquarters of the public. There's Shakespeare in the Park. Um, before the pandemic, the public was um, uh, was sort of workshopping, I guess, beta testing, and I hope they continue it. Um, so a national um, a national network of theaters um, um, doing their public works um, uh, type of performances, which we can talk about. Um, they took Lynn Nottage's Sweat on the road in a way to get that really important um, social political piece to communities that really deserved and needed to see it. Communities that might not be able to come to the public theater, might not be able to go to Broadway, uh, to it, it, just physically, but also might not be able to afford the, you know, the ridiculously high tickets of Broadway. So I think the public genuinely, Oscar and his team genuinely believe in, in the ideals of theater for all. And we get caught up in the big things, but those things that I mentioned are, are equally important. And then not to mention, and I don't spend a lot of time in the book on it because I think it deserves a whole other book, is um, Joe's Pub. You know, the cabaret club that, you know, is on the ground floor of the Public Theater's Lafayette headquarters that every single night is platforming um, established artists, new artists, singers, monologuists, um, you know, wonderful people. Um, they're giving them a, a venue to work.
1: One thing that has always struck me as sort of odd about the public um, is that, like, yes, they do do all this accessible programming, and they do Shakespeare in the Park, which is one of the great institutions of New York City. But the tickets at Lafayette itself are often a little bit more expensive than you would find, maybe. I mean, especially you know for for a, a young theater goer. Then, what you might find at place like Signature or Players Horizons. Do you think they've they've done enough to make their kind of core programming at the downtown location accessible to people who don't have a lot of money?
0: I think the short answer is no. Um, but the longer answer is I think Oscar would say no as well. Um, I think it has been his um, biggest um, hope for his tenure that he could bring the ticket prices down. He said that to me. Um, uh, and I don't know all of the ins and outs of why mm-hmm. that can't happen. Um, well, I do. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about funding and whether or not uh, you can afford what you're putting on the stage. Um, in his ideal world, everything at the public theater would be free. He does not believe in, 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 in ticket prices necessarily for the shows that, that they do there. So he wants the public theater at Lafayette to look like the park. I'm not an economist. I don't exactly know how they're going to do that. They certainly haven't been able to do that over Oscar's tenure, but that is his goal, his dream.
1: How did you first become involved with the public?
0: Well, as a theater person, of course, I knew the public forever. Um, I was a student at Brown University working on my master's degree at that time uh, around 2000. And Oscar Eustace was the artistic director of Trinity Rep in Providence, Rhode Island. And there is uh, and still exists uh, a partnership between Trinity and Brown University. And he was teaching um, his bread and butter course. He was teaching dramaturgy to the grad students over a course of a couple of years. And I took his class as the first class I took at, at Brown. Um, and we remained in contact. Um, when I became a professor at the University of Colorado, I uh, I reached out to him and had him come do a you know a workshop with my students, and and you know we we became friends over the years, which I'm sure we'll talk about too. Um, and when I went on sabbatical, uh, my first sabbatical uh, in 2016, I um, just sort of set up shop, shop at the public, um, and he gave me. S- he gave me sort of free reign to, to, to research. I was working on another book at the time. So I was writing that and, and to, to start an oral history archive, which is what I wanted to do and what he thought was needed. And he basically gave me access to his, you know, um, his, his Rolodex and said, you know, interview these people and we'll put it in an archive. And as you might expect, you're sitting down, you know, with Kevin Klein and Jesse Tyler Ferguson and, um, uh, Susan Lloyd Parks and, and these these folks, and it's 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 an intoxicating environment, and very quickly I'm like, well, this kind of has to be a book, um, and so I started gearing gearing my interviews um, in that direction.
1: But you didn't create a book that was an oral history. I mean, there's a it's clearly based on interviews, but you also yeah. you you wrote a book, you know? yeah. like it's not it doesn't yeah. yeah. Which there are merits to, to both approaches, but why didn't you decide to kind of uh, have the book take the form that it did, which is, you know, essentially a narrative history, rather than, you know, uh, a kind of documentary style oral history.
0: I think several reasons. You know, the the this the seminal book on the public theater, the original book on the public theater is uh, Kenny Turin's um, "Free for All," which really is an oral history, and he and Joe Papp worked on that for years, and it's really is is transcripts. So with with sort of minimal. Um, commentary from Turin, I think it's a wonderful book. And I knew immediately I wanted to do something different. I am, I'm trained as a theater historian. I'm a scholar and, and I, I didn't want my voice to be completely out of it, especially because I thought, and I I still think, I hope, I had something to say about the public, especially since I was embedded in it. So yeah, it did actually start in my mind as being an oral history. But once I started, you know, after I'd been there for years, like, wait a minute, I need to put my voice in this and one of of the people who's featured in the book I'm not going to say cuz it's a private conversation basically encouraged me to do that and this person was a scholar as well and said don't be afraid of your voice and 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 go ahead and make the book about you as well and so I said okay <laughs> and I did so that's how it sort of evolved into not quite an oral history but more of a, a an unfolding story um with me kind of as the narrator
1: yeah um i i I want to be careful about this question because I, I do think that you've achieved this balance very well in the book, but did you ever worry that given the incredible kind of insider access you had to this institution, that your book would be perceived as kind of too much inside the institution?
0: Not only did I think it, about it, I obsessed about it. I probably talked to my therapist about it. <laughs> <laughs> of course I thought about it, and it's a completely appropriate question. I think I can yes. And I—that's where I said, like over the years, Oscar and I—and I'm not afraid to say this—have become friends. And and mm-hmm. and there will be people who say, well, then you can't write about it. I think that's bunk, actually. I I. But I came. It was a long time before I got to that place. Every person has biases, and and I think a scholar's responsibility is to not say that they don't, but be upfront about what they are. And I think in my introduction, I'm very clear about you know all of these things that you and I have just been talking about now, so that. Number one, I'll try not to be, I I, I will try not to write a palace biography. I don't think I did. I'm critical of the public. Um, But at the same time, um, people should know where I stand from the beginning and then they can make their own choices.
1: I guess for that criticism to stick, somebody else would have to make a case that you're wrong and the public isn't an extraordinary and inspiring institution, which I think, I think it would be a hard case to make,
0: <laughs> I think it's a hard case to make. I mean there's lots of again you know we could talk about some of them they've made mistakes. no one would d- doubt that and I think I think I hold their feet to the fire a bit in the book um and there are people I think they're detractors of the public, especially right now who who won't hear anything other than you must uh you know eviscerate the public and all major institutions. I don't feel that way, but mm-hmm. but some do i think um. Let me ask you about that
1: then. So you've you've talked about some of the extraordinary accomplishments of the public but what what do you feel like for you are the major ways that they're either falling short of their ideals or or maybe you think there are problems with the ideals themselves I'm not sure. What what would you what would you say are what feel like the most kind of salient um you know criticisms or or just kind of ways that the public could and you think should grow in the next 20 years.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um I'm gonna approach this kind of broadly, and then maybe we can we can certainly talk about specific instances. I think I say it that you know the title of the book is one public for a very purposeful reason. One, they use that term a lot. and two, it's a pretty confounding term. I don't know what one public means. and I think when you when you create a theater and when you create sort of an ethos not just in the in the public theater but in American theater broadly, that we are for all. Um, you have to start interrogating what that means and what your abilities to create theater for all actually looks like. And I think that's a major challenge of the public theater and one that we already touched on. Does the public sometimes become elitist because people can't afford tickets at the Astor Place uh, headquarters or because they can't pay, I mean, who can pay six, $700 for a ticket to Hamilton as it was in the early days of Hamilton. That is elitist. There's just no question about it. Um, and, and so while I don't know that we can necessarily assign blame to any one person institutionally, our theater at this sort of a level has, has become out of reach. Um, and so if you're claiming that, you know, if the founding, um, um, parameters of your theater company are accessibility, you have to step back and say, well, we're not accessible. We're working hard to be more accessible. And I do think they are. Um, but I think that really is the biggest conflict. Um, again, I'm not the type of person to say, throw anyone under the bus and say, this. it's your fault because you didn't do this, this, and this. I think this is the, 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 the major problem in American theater right now. And you see it Everywhere to the <laughs> the Washington post um editorial that was is so controversial as we're speaking about this that came out a couple of weeks ago. what is the way forward to make theater less elitist so that I think is a broad based broad brush approach to what I think the public is is struggling through um but I don't think it's unique to them
1: um let's talk a bit more about Shakespeare in the park um. Which is, yeah, truly one of the great things about, about living in New York. I, I saw their production of Hamlet earlier this summer. I'm very excited for uh, for the short run of Tempest that's coming up. It, it's yeah. something I look forward to every year. Um, you spend a lot of time writing about the production of Mother Courage, which is, of course, by Brecht, not by Shakespeare. Um, but. Was a, was a very notable production, not just because it uh, brought together Tony Kushner, Oscar Eustace, George C. Wolf, Wolfe, and Meryl Streep in a single production. What else made that production
0: um, notable and and something you wanted to write about? <laughs> well, part of the reason I wanted to write about it is because of what you just said. I mean, who doesn't want to read about Meryl Streep and Oscar Eustace and Tony Kushner and George C. Wolf, Wolfe uh, and Janine and Kevin Klein? Um, it was just, it was so packed full of, of superstars. But, but that I think was the reason I wanted to write about it. As I say in the book, I think that this, this sort of capitalist socialist um, experiment of the public theater in some ways, this is is not really an appropriate metaphor, but in some ways is, is, is represented by the idea of, of the (laughs) people-ness versus fame and glory and to have like a, packed in oscars first year a show just packed with famous people um in in a place where the tickets are free where you can go you can stand in line and go for free to watch the greatest actor in american history in 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 meryl streep um perform one of the greatest roles uh in, in of the 20th century that to me, and no, it's not Shakespeare, but that speaks to what the public is trying to do in in kind of beautiful ways. So I chose that play, not necessarily for its success. The reviews of it were, were decidedly mixed, but because that that famous, uh, the pact full of fame um, element to it really got it something that I was very curious about. Yeah.
1: Another um, Shakespeare in the Park production you write about is the version of Julius Caesar in which Caesar was intentionally portrayed as kind of a Trump-like figure. Um, This was famously controversial and there were protests at the theater by, um, you know, right-wing people who may or may not have uh, actually seen the play or had any intention to see the play. Um, I've talked to people, including like, you know, people who are quite close to the public who think that this was a mistake um do you think it was a mistake or do you think on its on its artistic merits it worked what's your kind of your evaluation of that production
0: Uh yeah that's an interesting point I don't I'd love to know what people have said off the record to you about why it would be a mistake Um the pe- people who
1: I've talked to have said that they think that it showed that the public didn't understand how a story could go viral in the internet era and become much bigger than you would think it would be. They just didn't, they didn't understand that the media landscape had changed and that you couldn't just do something and have it be a New York story anymore. Gotcha. Yeah. That can, that can help me focus
0: my answer. Um, Yeah, that is interesting. And I write about in the book that I thought it was, that it was interesting that they were caught unawares on that. Um, In retrospect, remember what year it was. I mean, um, it was is sort of early in our in our, our Trump obs- uh, uh, obsess <laughs> our global Trump obsession. Um, was it
1: actually 2016 or was
0: it was it 2017? Uh, oh I'm blanking right now. I know look at okay, yeah. that. I think it was 17. I think it was 2017. Um, but, but that's also the Trump problem.
1: I mean that's that's what you know, that's that's what I feel like liberal America did to Trump is underestimated the power of this you know, rabid viral online following to warp our politics in, you know, uh, ways that we're still feeling the ramifications of today.
0: Yeah, I think that's totally right. I think, um, I I think it was a little early in that, in, in, in our contemporary era and the way we feel about social media and the way we feel about the idea of quote unquote fake news. Um, so I think that the public was caught unawares is not that shocking that said, and Mm -hmm. I don't, to boast on this, but I write about it in the book that I was working you know, I followed that show, um, thinking this, this could be interesting. And, and I, I say this in the book. I mean, one of the first sit downs, I I interviewed Oscar periodically over the course of that production. And I said to him like, don't you think this is going to be a little controversial? And he said, look, if this show inspires a presidential tweet, I'll consider, I don't remember the, the quotes in the book, I'll consider that a win or something like that. Um, so he 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 said that kind of jokingly but he knew that the potential was there to you know for a president to send out a tweet now it became a lot more than just a presidential tweet i mean and in fact i don't think trump himself tweeted about it but donald trump junior did and then the right wing me- media got a hold of it and then it became a whole thing so i don't think oscar was completely shocked i think the the degree to which it got um close to out of control was what was very upsetting and shocking. Yeah. And I guess I should say, I mean, for those who don't know who, I mean, but that, that show has become one of the most famous shows in modern American theater history, I think, you know, by the end of the run, um, and, and P.S., the, the controversy didn't really happen until the last week of the run. Um, there was a, you know, a, a show where protesters stormed the stage. Um, it was, it was a scary, it was a scary proposition.
1: One of the things that seems odd to me, I mean, I, I, I didn't actually see this, this production, but, you know, one of the things that Oscar Eustace has said, and I'm paraphrasing, is, is basically that he thinks Julius Caesar is a cautionary tale about the, the ways that using violence to achieve political ends kind of always is doomed to fail or something like that. Um which I think is, yeah, sure. I mean, that that that's certainly a valid reading of Julius Caesar. It doesn't seem to me to be a particularly valid reading of like what was going on in with Trump in 2017. Like, there was nobody on the entire left half of the political spectrum that was really seriously suggesting using political violence. In fact, those suggestions only came from Trump's side of the aisle. So, I mean, it, it seems like a weird thing to sort of have a play that, to me, seemed to be kind of warning liberals to not
0: take up arms against Trump when that was never really an option, you know, I hadn't thought about it in that way. And so you're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to just have to ponder on that thought. Uh, But yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, he, he said, and he said this, I think before the controversy too, It's like the point of Caesar and it is the point of the play Mm -hmm. uh, is is to say, you you know, you know, illiberal means of going after a, a, a politician like that will, will, will not, not succeed. And of course, Historically and in Shakespeare's play and in Oscar's retelling of the play, it it doesn't succeed. I mean, you kill the, you know, you kill the Caesar or the the Trump-like character and, and things don't go well afterwards. Things fall apart. Um, but yeah, the context is very interesting and I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. Um, it makes me think of the uh,
1: the Orson Welles production of Julius Caesar, where he d- didn't do the second two acts because he just wanted it to end with, and then they killed him, <laughs> which I've always thought was, you know, a sort of very ballsy uh, young director thing to do in the 1930s. I think point, I think,
0: <laughs> yeah. maybe the entire point, but yeah. <laughs> you know, and and it's, but to that sort of looking at historical productions of Julius Caesar is apt, and um, and, and yeah, honestly doing a Trump version of Caesar is not is not out of the box I mean using the current politician of the day of whatever era as the model for the the, the dictator is is tried and true <laughs> I mean, there was an Obama Caesar you know at a theater during Obama's tenure. Um, I think the point of this was it was it was really blatant it was in Central Park I mean literally within the shadow of Trump Tower and we live in a, a social media world that, that is happy to cause controversy.
1: This question may be a little inside baseball, but I think it's relevant. Which uh, is about the lobby redesign. Um, part of Oscar's tenure has involved a, a kind of overhaul of the physical space of the public theater. Do you think that that overhaul has helped to make the space more accessible? Has it has it helped them kind of achieve their goal of being a theater
0: for the whole city? Um, I'm not an architect. I know the, <laughs> I know the I know the building quite well. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, a, a good architectural um, scholar could talk about whether or not it works. I think it works. I mean, the point was, as I, as I write about is to make, to, to create a space that in some ways feels like a stage. And uh, the way I describe it is it almost also feels like a, a mini Grand Central Station. You kind of walk in and there's, you know, neon lights and, go, you know, and, and, and pink. And, and and the right in the middle, of course, is this, is this wonderful chandelier that, that spouts out, you know, Words of Shakespeare and, and and so it feels very much um, like a place where people gather, not a living room, but more of a, uh, as I said, a Grand Central Station. So in my mind, and 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 knowing what it looked like before, I think it's it's a massively good upgrade. Um, I think, um, and I I I know that there are long term plans to to think about how they can continue to improve it. Um, one of the things that, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a crowded space. There's, you know, things like, you know, I think signature has bookstores and shops and things like that. That doesn't have, that's not an existence at the, at the public, but um, the idea to make it New York stage and to make it a place where anyone can come and sit on the steps and have lunch and feel like it's theirs. I think in that way it's successful.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that you compare it to Grand Central Station because what strikes me about that is that Grand Central Station is not a place you go to like hang out, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like it, I, I've been in that lobby a number of times, and it feels like yeah, it, it's it's very efficiently sorting you to the space you're supposed to go. But you mentioned Signature. I mean, Signature very much feels like, you know, you, you can you can spend a half an hour, forty five minutes after the show, and not feel
0: like you're being weird for
1: still being there,
0: you know? You know, you're, you're right. I mean, so I say I, I do still stick with the Grand Central Station, but there's something also a little um, sort of cold about it. So it's it's a place that shuffles you to the next place. And I think that's probably a good description. Um, they have a lovely mezzanine, that you know, which they are, they've put books in and they're trying to invite you to come. They, they put in a, a sort of a fancy restaurant called the Library, which is excellent, which is very clubby and cozy and, and feels like a place you want to sit. But you're right that, that downstairs is, <laughs> is kind of bright and you just kind of want to get to the theater.
1: Yeah. I guess maybe some people would think it's like exciting, you know, how bright and busy and, and bustling it is. I guess that's probably what they're going for.
0: I think the, the, this, the cityness of it is the steps in front. And, you know, I say this to friends of mine who don't know the public theater, but you can go sit on the steps and, and this happened to me. And like, there's Kevin Klein, you know, or, or you run into a, a playwright and that there's, um, there's sort of a sense of, of people coming and going in a, in a sort of exciting arts forward way.
1: Um, I'd love to talk about Sweat, which is one of the plays you write about. And, and I think is the greatest play of the past 10 years, you know, both in terms of craft and in terms of content and just in terms of its, you know, incredible timing. I, I was a student of Lynn Nottage and said, Somebody in my class asked her when that play premiered. They were like, "Did you time this so that it would premiere like right around the election?" And she said, "Of course I did." <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, is just sort of like a, a a great. I mean, she's very thoughtful about not just the writing, but how the writing is is presented. Um, but also, you know, it's a play that thrusts us back into that central question of, you know, this is a play about factory workers in a deindustrializing Pennsylvania town, um, but that's not the demographic that saw it, at least not initially. So could you talk about kind of the ways that 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 play uh, engaged with questions of class and audience in the various different ways that they presented that play?
0: Yeah, I can. And and since you're a student of Lynn Nottage's, you might be able to add, add more than I can. Um, of course, Sweat came to the public after um, being at OSF, uh, Organ Shakespeare and, and Arena. Uh, so it was sort of a tree, a, tr- a trio of, of, of producers. Um, but if, but when it was very successful, the public and then transferred to Broadway and all of this, as you said, coincided with the election. Um, I think as I, as I alluded to before the, it's a great play. Anyone, you know, one it's won all sorts of awards and it's great. Everyone should read it. Um, but I think the public theaters b- stamp on it, which, which um Lynn and Oscar and all the people involved were very keen on was to get it outside of New York, and so the mini tour that happened um, at that time, I think, is a critical is critical, and that's what I mainly write about is critical in the understanding of sweat. Um, it went to they did go up to Pennsylvania and show it um, to the people of whom it was about. Uh, and then they did a, a tour that was mostly in the industrial Midwest, I think entirely in the industrial Midwest, not at major theaters, but um, in a format that mirrored um, the public theaters um, uh, mobile Shakespeare unit. Like you set up, you do the show, it, you tear it down. You're not doing massive sets. People are sitting um, cheek by jowl, very close to the, the, the actors. There's conversation afterwards. And I think Sweat is the one example, and I think I say the one solitary example because not very long thereafter, COVID closed everything down, in which you had a mega successful show that, you know, won the the Pulitzer, that went to Broadway, that had an extraordinarily famous playwright associated with it, but also figured out a way to get out of town um, in a way that felt how do I put this, in a way that felt in line with what the play, the the content of the play was trying to do. Uh, that's Lynn, of course, Lynn Nottage, but I think that's also the stamp of the public theater. Mm-hmm.
1: One of the things that was so um, common in kind of the the reaction of New York audiences to that play was a sort of feeling of like, oh my God, I didn't realize that this was happening to, you know, the the middle 80% geographically of the country. Um, How did the play play differently among people who did know the toll that deindustrialization had taken on their
0: communities? Yeah. And, and I would be full, full disclosure. I was not able to see it um, Mm -hmm. on tour. Um, So I can't give firsthand account, but in talking to Lynn Nottage and talking to the director uh, and talking to the producer of, of that tour um, in, in, in the past couple of years, um, it was profoundly powerful, especially when they went to to Pennsylvania. That people were, um, according you know, according to those those people working on it, were deeply moved um, to, to tears and uh, and emotionality, which you would expect. I mean, it's it's a play about their their community. Um, so, I mean, I think the power of Broadway right is to get more people in the room, learning more about um, about something they don't know and 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 opening their eyes, but. Often, you know, the, the glitz and glory and glamour of Broadway, um, I, this is my big fat opinion, I mean, obscures the um, sort of the deep pathos that I think can only come with a small audience in a specific location.
1: I remember the like Broadway poster for Sweat just seemed so wrong to me. Oh, me, what was it? I it was forget. like a sort of like blurry picture of one of the actors like laughing and holding a glass of beer oh, or something. Yeah. And it just made it sound like a sort of. It made it seem like a like, you know, fun breezy comedy <laughs> about you know people
0: drinking and having a good time, which is. Well, well, it's funny you mention that. I I've been uh, doing some research for maybe another book or just whatever, maybe an article or something, uh, about sort of iconography in, in, in at the public and 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 you know smaller theaters, and then what happens to the iconography when it shifts to Broadway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're exactly right. I mean, this over and over and over again. It goes from sort of with the public, and then onto Broadway. It goes from this sort of gritty sort of iconography and 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 um, and look um, to something that's going to sell broadly. I mean, there's there's the reason it's not an article. Is it's sort of like a well-known duh. It has to because that's what Broadway does. It has to sell to a wider audience and an audience that's made up of you know uh, more tourists and 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 people spending quite a lot of money for one evening. Um, but yeah, sometimes it, <laughs> it's just totally wrong. Doesn't look like the play at all. Yeah.
1: Another play that had not made it to Broadway when you finished the book, but has now come to Broadway is Here Lies Love, uh, by David Byrne and Fat Boy Slim. Um, and it seems, I get the sense, I, obviously, you know, we, if you write a book it's not going to stay you know um completely up to date forever but i get the sense that you sort of thought it would never make it to broadway and that its time had passed and yet
0: here it is does do you feel like that tells us anything broader about the state of broadway today it just uh, yeah i think it does and i have lots to say about it. that is perhaps my not a favorite show in the history of the public. Not necessarily. I don't know if it's the best, but it's the one I was most connected to. And I saw it four times at the public and I interviewed David Byrne about it. And, and it's the only play that has an entire chapter in the book. Um, and you're quite right. At the end, I'm like, and this show never went to Broadway books published and like the next week it goes to Broadway. Um, so I was shocked, surprised. And I would like to say my book had a per- certain amount of um, reason. No, it didn't. No, <laughs> no one moved it to Broadway because of what I wrote, but, um, The surprise about it is that uh, I don't, well, I don't know. I can only speculate since it, what, it opened last month. Um, But obviously it needed to find a theater. It needed to find funding, I assume. um, And it, you know, it needed to find an audience. I think it probably just needed to find money where, where they could transform a theater. David Byrne wanted that show originally to be in a club. Um, with, you know, that's the way it's built the way it is, like with stages around the club and you go here and you see a song and then you go over here and you see a song and it's sweaty and people are dancing. And, you know, he says by the, you know, in the process of writing that show over the 10 years of writing and creating it, those sorts of clubs went away in New York city and there really wasn't a venue for it, but that the public theater up at the Louester hall, which is one of their smallest theaters was willing to uh, not only workshop this, but put in the resources to kind of recreate a club that's very hard, uh, on Broadway and the economic, um, ramifications of having to take seats out and, and get audience on their feet dancing is huge. So back then there was no, they they couldn't figure it out. There was no space that would, could really accommodate it financially and Broadway was booming and, 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 um, things weren't moving, but I think this gets to the second part of your question and I'm, I'm speculating a little bit here, Andy, but, things are opening and closing on Broadway relatively quickly right now. There's, mm-hmm. there's spaces to, there's spaces to be had. And, and maybe that's part of the reason I, I don't know the exact reasons. Cause I was, I was surprised when it, when it transferred. <laughs> and if it, if I had known I would have held off on the publication date two weeks and so I could have just said that, Yeah. Um, but I'm happy it has. And I have seen it on Broadway and I think they preserve, you know, it, it does feel much more cavernous and, uh, and Broadway in quotation marks, but I also think it preserves the intimacy that I think is essential for that show.
1: But it's also a I show that, that is, I kind of rambled there, but <laughs> no, that's all right. it is a show that is kind of about glitz and glamour. So maybe it doesn't have quite the same problem of, how, you know, how does the meaning change when it gets to Broadway? I mean, it's,
0: it's kind of, it kind of is supposed to be a big spectacle. It is. I mean, in some ways it does work. I mean, I mean, in, 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 for what you're saying, but, you, you do have to take seats out. I mean, for those who don't mm-hmm. know, I mean, the show happens on the stage at the Broadway theater and the audience is there on top of it um, and it extends out into the orchestra and then sort of what what you might call the traditional audience is the mezzanine. Um, I don't know the numbers in the Broadway theater, but I, I assume they're much lower than what they could normally accommodate in there. So that's lost revenue. Mm-hmm.
1: Another show you write about is Fun Home which we've talked a little bit about earlier in our conversation. You say that in in a way that show was as transformative as Hamilton. Um, what, what do you feel like was so notable about that show? I mean I, I love that musical I think it's one of the great musicals of the of the last you know 20 years but other than its quality, what makes made
0: that show
1: um, such a, a milestone for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, if I would have had to, that to write again, I, I might have said should be should have been as transformative as Hamilton, because there's no doubt it was not as transformative. Hamilton was the massive hit that it was and still is. And Fun Home had a very successful, you know, what it was, a couple year run on Broadway and, and, and won the Tony Award. I guess if, if I would go with the should have been, it would be because there is something about Fun Home that is utterly breaking a mold of what a Broadway, a Tony award winning Broadway show should be. Not only the content, a play about a a, a lesbian coming to terms with her identity in the 80s alongside her father and not giving anything away, you know, dealing with her father's death, Um, that that could be a show that could win a Tony award and be the toast of the town for a year or two. That's kind of extraordinary. Um, to you know, have a, 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 a graphic novel uh, by a, a lesbian um, written for the stage by another lesbian, directed by you know one of the pre uh, not directed by but um, the score written by one of the most preeminent female um, uh, musical writers of our time. This was a show that did and should have for longer put women. Um, in the spotlight in a way that they have too often been ignored over the course of the history of Broadway, mm-hmm. Hamilton did that uh, for people of color, um, particularly in a beautiful and wonderful and transformative way. Uh, and I think Fun Home um, <clears throat> did it. It did for women and for uh, for the LGBTQ community. Um, I wish it had been a smashing success for ten years. Yeah.
1: In a way, it is. I mean, it's it's still it's a pretty um it's not, it's not a huge spectacle to produce, so it does get productions fairly regularly around the country. So it's its impact is maybe you know quieter than Hamilton's, but it's it's still uh rolling its way around the, the
0: country. Yeah, well, and and I presume you you and your your listeners, no, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not degrading Hamilton in any way. I am happy Hamilton is transformative. It's an extraordinary show, but I think I don't know. I think. Fun Home is and should have been just as much because it's it's um, it's pretty amazing and, and just in the way it's crafted and in you know the fact that it went to circle on the square and that beautiful production and the round and the way they were using the stage and that intimacy um, is very not Broadway <laughs> and so that it, that it was as I said that it was the toast of the town is kind of amazing
1: yeah and I mean it's still pretty rare to have anything with that big of a platform center. Queer characters. I mean, especially yeah. lesbian characters. I, I I feel like that's you know we, we might think we've come a long way in terms of representation, but I think if you looked at what other shows are on Broadway, you'd be I mean you you wouldn't be surprised, but one might be surprised how exceptional that still is, even all these years yeah. later.
0: Yeah, and I guess I mean, some of the research I want to continue to do is actually look a little bit more in the time that that's been since since the close of of, of that show to now and whether or not it has had an appreciative um, effect on, on what goes to Broadway. Off the top of my head, I don't know, but I, you're right. We've moved in, in, in good directions, but there is a long way to go.
1: Uh, like many theaters, the public was um, kind of caught up in the racial reckoning following George Floyd's murder in 2020. And there were some pretty, it sounds like, acrimonious um, discussions at the public about ways that people felt they had fallen short of, especially uh, goals around racial justice. Um, could you kind of uh, give us a sense of of what the controversy was about at that time and what changes have Come since then to try to do better mm-hmm. in that area.
0: Yeah, I can I can mention. I mean, this is a you know multiple hour conversation, but I can certainly touch on on a few of them. Um, at the public theater in the in the time before. In the time before COVID nineteen and 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 and, the, and George Floyd's murder, um, there was, as a write about them group, a, a a group of of um, BIPOC artists at the public who were working on uh, a letter that was eventually called the Letter from the Margin that outlined the ways that they wanted the public to improve um, in racial representation in um, in sort of. You know, a stake uh, in what was what was being produced to the public. Um, So they were working. They were working on this document, and you know, and when working um, you know in, in groups to just sort of discuss this. And then the George Floyd murder happened, and I think it um, not only jumpstarted the conversation in the country broadly, but also in the theater world, and most especially in in my research at the Public. Now, the letter from the margin and the work that they had been doing had an even even bigger um, uh, uh, Resonance or, or uh, um, platform, if I could put it that way, um, and so it all kind of became a perfect storm of conversation, of debate, of acrimony in some places. And I think um, that that continued through that entire sem- uh, that entire summer. And and Oscar, who he, he talks about this openly in the book, um, uh, you know, it was really tense. Um, and I think it went to a place. Um, and I think it did uh, across the country, you know, where things got um, understandably um, uh, heated, uh, um, tense, angry, uh, and that that had to happen um, before you they could settle in is not the way to put this, but settle into really putting forth um, changes that might appreciably um, Alter the situation of injustice that was permeating the uh, the theater world. Has that happened entirely? Of course not. Um, and I think, as a, as an industry, we're still working on that. And as the public, I think public theater is still working on that. What are the ways that they've changed? Um, I uh, I think the one of the first things that and perhaps the most important thing is um, Oscar saw it as necessary in those conversations and and in the way he was looking at the theater to be sure that his, and this is another theme of the book, what does it mean to be um sort of the megafauna artistic leader in this this day and age? And if you are sort of the centralized artistic leader and you're a white man, does that um, present its own sets of complications? And I think he would say he, took a deep look at that and said, yeah, that does present some complications. So he brought on a, a larger team of, of, um, advisors and associate artistic directors and, 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 and including, um, Sahim, who is kind of, an, who's a wonderful Sahim Ali, who, um, just recently was nominated for, uh, t- directing Tony for Fat Ham, Shanta Take, who is now, um, running, uh, Lincoln Center, um, and 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 opened um, opened up the conversations and influence um, at, at the highest levels those conversations are still going on they're going on in every American theater and it's going to be interesting to see how how things are adjusting not for nothing since then you can look at what's happened in Shakespeare in the park just Simply Shakespeare in the Park, and look at how many um, directors of color have been represented in the last five years. I, I don't, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think almost mm-hmm. every show in the last five years has been uh, has had had that focus, which I think is good. Mm-hmm. Um, their stage, I think, is um, act from an actor standpoint, is sixty percent um, mm-hmm. people of color, which sounds like you know, from a city you know, in Colorado, that might sound like a lot, but actually that's that, that reflects um, the representation of New York city. That is not to say, wow, successes, we're doing great. I think they're still working very hard on figuring out where their blind spots are.
1: Yeah. And, and you don't write about this in the book, just based on the timeframe of the book, but the kind of, the recent layoffs at the public and the kind of uh, the, the least temporary maybe closure of under the writer festival, that, that all makes this conversation even more difficult because now, you know people want access they haven't had before but the resources are less than they were before so it, it it there's a feeling that there's less pie and more people who deserve a piece of it and and uh
0: yeah, yeah I mean there's no doubt and this the, you know the the current crisis we're living through I mean my the epilogue of the book is Oscar talking about and I think it's prescient he talks about uh I did an interview with him in tw- uh January of 2022 the book came out January 2023, um, and he talks about you know the fact that they're coming back from COVID, but he predicts quite rightly. Uh, I am really scared for the future, for financial future of this theater and American theater generally, and he was right. Um, he saw the writing on the wall, which is that the way theaters produced in America has to be looked at, uh, has to be figured out, and perhaps I'm not I'm not quoting him here. I'm just saying this myself perhaps we've become too bloated in, in, in some areas and, and, and not focusing enough on others. Um, and that seems to be the conversation right now, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And the cuts of the public are are devastating, but also they're not as significant as they are in some other places.
0: No, because the the public can cut 19%, which is, I think what it was, and it's going to still be okay. You know, it's got a lot of funding. And, and I mean, I think they're, they're cutting to secure a, a, a leaner future. Um, but the, ha- the fact that they had to do that is, is devastating for, obviously for the people that they had to cut out.
1: Obviously, um, when you're writing a book that is a sort of contemporary history, you have to end it at some point. Um, Oscar Eustace is still a history to, to write the public. So the era of Oscar Eustace is not over. Um, though it obviously cannot go on, uh, infinitely, uh, just based on you know, the, the fact that people age. Um, but why did you, so why did you decide to end the book when you did, which is sort of roughly at that COVID era pause? Um, and and why, why did that feel like the end of the book?
0: Okay, so this straight up reason is I have, projects that i'm working on and i was sitting on a load of material and i wanted to get a book out that is the secondary reason to the primary reason is i was looking for a bookend and um and it, it really did be i think it published at exactly the right time because i think the covid pause and what happens next is about as good a bookend as you can get um and and so that's why um but practically speaking I was sitting on a on 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 a book I wanted to publish, and it was time to get it out. I would love it if everyone goes and buys the book, and it necessitates a second version, and I can write about the, you know, whatever the last few years of Oscar Hughes' his tenure, uh, as well, because I think it's very interesting what's happened since the book came out, less than a year ago, is worthy of three more chapters. <laughs> Great.
1: Can I ask you, uh, as a, as a kind of parting question? You've mentioned some other projects. If, if any of them are far enough, further far enough along to say, could you give us a sense of what you are working on these days? <sighs>
0: yeah I, I i won't I'm not going to be specific I'll tell you things I'm interested in because i'm I don't have a, I, I I don't quite yet know the directions I want to take but i what I just said is is fascinating to me. I had to end my book somewhere um and I think the public theater it can be representative of major not for profit theaters in New York in a way that I want to expand on um you brought up signature I love signature I mean I'm embedded in the public but I also want to see and look at how some of the experiences that the public is going through in the last couple of years and American theater is going through can be, um, extrapolated into, you know, sort of a larger conversation about why we need theater. What, what is the reason for theater as a professor and a lover of theater? I got my answers. Um, but I think we're still sussing out our, our need value. That's a horrible way of putting it, but I think, you know, where I'm going, I mean, COVID, made us say to ourselves as we, as we started going online to save our, our jobs and our livelihoods, made us ask, what is theater for? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd like to see how that conversation plays out and, and, you know, maybe work on some articles that, that sort of delve into that a little bit more.
1: Did that involve any kind of a, a reframe or a clarification for you about your answers to those questions?
0: Yeah, I think, and I think, and I, uh, yes, and I'm, and forgive me, I'm going to just sort of think out loud a little bit here and and then feel embarrassed that this isn't a podcast and I have to stick with it. Uh, (laughs) But I guess to a degree, the idea that theater, how do I put this? I think I agree with Oscar in that theater is an essential good, it's beyond an essential good, it's an essential, need for a democratic society it is a essential need for a compassionate society Um, and theater in the broadest sense the idea that human beings can gather next to each other breathe the same air which covid said you cannot do and look at each other and see the person next to them weeping as they watch a play and empathize he talks about that a lot theater gives us the chance to empathize with others that's why i believe theater is essential How we move forward and make that essential thing um, the most important aspect in the way we create theater, I think that's the big question. Um, There are those who say big institutions have to die. I disagree with that. There are those who say Broadway doesn't do that. I utterly disagree with that. We have to think of the theater holistically um, as an organism for, for compassion and empathy. And, and, and allow ourselves to invest time in the multifaceted ways that we can espouse that. Because I think now more than ever, our democracy needs it.
1: I think that's a wonderful note to end on, Kevin. Uh, the book, once again, is One Public, New York's Public Theater in the Era of Oscar Eustace by Kevin Landis. Uh, thanks so much for appearing on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about your
0: wonderful book. It's my pleasure. Thank you.